What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I appreciate it every time you listen. And if you have not done so yet, do me the biggest favor and click the subscribe button on whatever platform it is that you listen to the podcast on. And if you wouldn't mind, share it with some friends that also listen to podcasts. I talk to people across so many different topics. I'm sure your friends will ultimately find something they like. And if they don't, well, I don't know. You tried, right? Also, you can follow along on social media. If you've got Instagram, Facebook, it's at that curious Jones. Shoot me a message. Let me know where you're listening from. Let me know what you think of the show. I might get back to you. My guest today is someone who I've wanted to speak with for, well, quite honestly, the entire time that I've had this podcast. I came to know him through his appearance on the Joe Rogan experience, where he actually debated Alex Berenson, who had just recently written a book called Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And I remember listening to this podcast episode and being really impressed with how he articulated the information, um, was very honest about some of the negative side effects, consequences of cannabis. And it's just somebody who I felt I could trust going forward. And so I've continued to follow along to what he's been up to. Um, He's continued to leverage cannabis in his practice. And he's also started to leverage ketamine uh, as a means of therapy. And so Uh, really interesting. Wanted to talk with him about that. We did talk about cannabis. We talked about ketamine. We talked about mental illness in general. Um, I think we even talked a little bit about uh, tough love and just how that really plays into things for people. Um, And I also got a chance to talk to him about my friend who, if you listen to the podcast regularly, I shared, had a really bad experience on an edible while we were in Florida. And so I got my guest's opinion about that. So all in all, really enjoyed the episode. I'm sure you will too. Give it up for my guest, Dr. Mike Hart. But before we enjoy this episode, a super quick shout out from the sponsor of this podcast, Action Specialty Roast Coffee and Natural Supplements. Look, I'm going to make it super quick and super simple. If you're a coffee drinker and you haven't head to the website yet, Go to drinkaction.com, that's action spelled with a K. If you sign up for a subscription, you will save 20% off your order every time it ships. And you can set it to come every two weeks or every month or every month and a half, whatever floats your boat. We don't care. We just want to make sure you have the best and freshest coffee at your doorstep when you need it. And if you sign up today and you use code word curious, you will save an additional 15% off of your order. You're basically getting the first month free and you can grab a few other products while you're at it. Things like turmeric and hemp, things like MCTs, grab a hat, a shirt for your friends that don't work out. They all should be repping action. Drinkaction.com, code word curious and enjoy this episode. You're, you're up in Ontario, right? I am. I am. Yeah. It's, uh, unfortunately it's snowing here today. <laughs> Same. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm, I'm actually in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, oh, you are. Okay. And I cool. was up towards your direction. I, I grew up in Bradford, Pennsylvania. 
um, just south of Buffalo, New York. So uh, okay. spent a lot of time in the Niagara Falls area as a, as a kid, as far as traveling into Canada, that was always like a, an annual trip for us. So. Okay, cool. But uh, yeah, I uh, went to Pittsburgh once just for a, a bachelor party. It was like almost 10 years ago, but oh. good time. Good time. A bachelor party in Pittsburgh. Yeah. No yeah. Kidding. I, don't, I don't know. Some dude wanted to throw it there and I went and it was fun. It was fun. Definitely wouldn't be like the first place that I would think, but no, like living here, it's a city that's certainly like on the rise. There's a lot of cool stuff to do here for sure. Well, I think what it was, was um, uh, the guy was a big Pittsburgh Penguins fan. I mean, so, you know, part of the trip was that we went to a Penguins game. Okay. Makes, that makes yeah. a little bit more sense. Just yeah. trying to justify it, man. I don't want to talk shit on Pittsburgh. It's uh, probably like the worst thing I could do, but I was like, man, a bachelor party in Pittsburgh. That's interesting, but not yeah. right on, dude. Yeah, this was fun. It was fun. So, yeah, all good. I like the city, actually. So yeah. I was surprised. Like a lot of water and stuff like that. There's a couple of nice areas I really enjoyed. So yeah. I'd go it, back. Yeah, 10 years. I mean, it was on the upswing when you came. But in the last 10 years, this place is it's exploded. It's a uh, it's a really interesting city. It's a lot like Austin. If you've been to Austin, right. it's a lot like Nashville. Little a few steps behind, but moving in that yeah. direction of a big technology presence here with like Carnegie Mellon University, a lot of robotics that are based here okay. in Pittsburgh. It's really driving the, the economy, but cool. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So you're, awesome. you're in family medicine, correct? I'm a family doctor. Yeah. How long have you been practicing? Uh, I've been practicing for um, just over nine years now. Yeah. Just over any, nine years. Any particular reason you got into family practice? Um, yeah, a couple different reasons. I mean, first of all, it, you're no longer like narrowed really when you're into family. So you can kind of do like, I don't want to say whatever you want, but you can, you know, really change your scope like fairly easily. So like, you know, I wasn't really planning on becoming like, you know, a cannabis physician per se. Like if I, uh, you know, when I graduated or when I was in residency or med or medical school, but, um, you know, they introduced this new program in 2014 called the MMPR program and just made it way more um, uh, easily for like uh, prescribers or physicians to, to prescribe. So I got into that. So just allows you to pivot now I'm like I'm prescribing, you know, um, testosterone for, for guys who, you know, need TRT, uh, doing like ketamine. So it just allows me to sort of like pivot and do a lot of different things as opposed to kind of being like honed into one thing. And I'm not saying that in other specialties, like you can't, like I know people doing, you know, anesthesiology that also do a lot of like Botox or cosmetic stuff and that kind of thing. Um, so it's not like it's like, you know, you have to be a family doctor in order to pivot, but it definitely makes it a little bit easier, I think, you know? Yeah. It's interesting I, that you kind of went where you went with, you didn't go into it looking to be like a cannabis doctor. Um, no, and, and no, and it's interesting. I was looking at your website, um, prior to hopping on today and, uh, I switched doctors for my private, um, just primary care physician here. And it was specifically for cannabis reasons. So I, a medical user in the state of Pennsylvania and the doctor that I was seeing at the time didn't have any type of certification. And so I just went and was like, all right, who's got good reviews. Um, and ironically it worked out 
in a positive way for me because the doctor, and I'll give Dr. Beam a big shout out here in Pittsburgh. He is the first doctor that I've ever had who spent more than five or 10 minutes with me per an appointment. And, you know, I think my haste to hurry up and find a doctor that could get me a, a PA cannabis card to just make my life a little bit easier actually, you know, opened my eyes to we should be asking a lot of questions about you, your lifestyle, the things that you do, you know, your body, and really start to diagnose some of the problems that you probably, I mean, there's things that have been nagging me forever, but you know, all I ever got was a piece of paper that was like, here, go to the pharmacy and try this. Um, and so it was interesting. And I kind of drew this correlation that he found himself into cannabis, but only because he was the type of doctor that was willing to ask why, like a layer yeah. further. Right. And I, I don't know if that's something that makes sense to you, but I, in, in retrospect, I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm glad that I kind of went that route and found somebody that was open-minded, I guess is maybe the word, right? Yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, open-minded probably is the word. And I do feel that a lot of the docs that I've not like all of them, but I do feel that a lot of the docs that I've met in cannabis are more open-minded to maybe some other, not even alternative treatments. I mean, maybe some of them are alternative treatments, but just open-minded in general um, in medicine, as opposed to like all treatments, like pharmaceutical and or, and uh, non-pharmaceutical based. So I, uh, I, I can understand like why, you know, you probably had that experience with that doctor, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. do you think there's something, and I, I guess maybe, I don't know if you can speak to the U S system, right. But yeah. there's the stereotype that that's just kind of what happens, right? Your doctor gets you, you go in you talk to him for a couple minutes, they write you a script, they move on. I mean, insurance, probably a big driver to that, but I mean, is there something that happens that a doctor becomes jaded or unwilling to look outside of just, this is how it is. This is why it's happening and really be kind of like house. You know, I think about that show house and it was like, let's think of all the random reasons that this could potentially be. And yeah. I, mean, I mean, you're building a TV show, but you know, what, what creates that doctor to act the way that they are? Um, I think a lot of it is, is, is time. You know, there's only so much time that you have and that can spend with each, each patient. And so that definitely makes it like a little bit, you know, trickier um, because sometimes, you know, people, have easy problems that you know maybe only take you know a couple minutes like if someone has a strep throat and it's super obvious i mean you know you hardly even need to look into the throat to, to kind of see if it's uh you know if there's a lot of pathology there just because sometimes it's so obvious now other cases you know you do have to take a pretty detailed look to see you know if there's some bacteria in the back of the throat but you know sometimes um you know you get these real quick appointments you can do in just like a minute or two but then there are other appointments that, you know, are going to take longer. They may be 15 minutes. They might be 30 minutes. I mean, some might be a full hour. Um, but, you know, for the most part, like physicians aren't just going to take like that much amount of time unless they have it like a lot in their day. So, you know, I always put a half hour for my new patients just so that, you know, they have that kind of time to, you know, sit down and get to know me a little bit and ask, you know, uh, the questions that they need. And then, I have other patients that I see, you know, once a year and, you know, if there's no changes to their, 
medication, no changes, no changes to the diagnosis, you know, no changes overall. Um, you know, I know that person probably is just sort of doing the appointment does more or less a formality to get his you know prescription and uh, and kind of continue on. You know, and then that type of appointment probably only will be you know two or three minutes. So I think it's just you know trying to uh, be as like you know, aware as you can as to maybe before the appointment as to how much the appointment may may take. But then again, you know, you may ask a question during the appointment that, you know, you didn't really expect the answer to. And then you you may realize that, hey, you know, this is actually a little bit more of a serious problem that both you thought and I thought before this appointment, and it's going to take some more time. So I think that a lot of it really just comes down to time, you know, and, uh, and it's unfortunate that there's not more time you know to spend with with patients but it's also something that's really really difficult to figure out because there's only so many doctors for for so many people and everyone needs to get seen and you know some care um in many ways is better than no care but you know obviously you know prolonged care that you know we are focused on the patient is much better overall mm-hmm. oh it makes sense yeah it's the one one variable that you have zero control over right? yeah um so I'm making an assumption, but you know, you're, you're open-minded guy, this new program becomes available. You're already practicing at this point in time. I'm already practicing for about a year at this point in time. Okay. And so just as somebody who's open-minded, this becomes available. And was it more of a, a scenario where you had a lot of patients coming and you're like, okay, let's give it a shot. And you start to see benefit and you start to then find use useful application for it? Or were you kind of proactive in that saying, you know what, I'm going to go out, look at what the, what other doctors and other, you know, research is showing, and I'm going to bring this to my client base or my, my um, patients, I guess would be the the right terminology and and see if this is going to help solve some of the problems that maybe we're unable to solve with traditional therapy. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it comes down to like personal history and use as well. Um, so like I, you know, use cannabis like off and on in my um, like as a teenager and, and, you know, in my early 20s and that kind of thing. But just like recreationally, like and I was never like a massive smoker, like I wasn't really the guy who would like bring pot to the party. But if someone had some there, you know, it's probably going to have some kind of thing. Um, but I always knew like whenever I smoked, I slept really, really well. And, uh, when I was in, I think it was my second year of residency. Um, I had to do an emergency room rotation and a lot of the shifts started at 4am. I was like, man, like, how am I going to get eight hours of sleep and get up at three 30? And, uh, that's when I started using cannabis medicinally. And it was really effective for me because, you know, I'd have a little bit of cannabis at night and then you know wake up real early the next morning i'll be fresh for my for my shift um so you know i knew that it you know i could benefit from it greatly and then in addition to that um there was one time i tried zopoclone one time which is a, um, a hypnotic or a, or a sleep medication that's very commonly prescribed in uh, in canada and um the the next day i had like you know, the, the classic side effects that come along with that drug. So I was just very, very groggy, felt a lot of brain fog. And then the one thing I'll never forget, like I went to get 
uh, some water from the water cooler and like it tasted just like metal, like just like you would read in the side effects of what people would say. And I was just like, never again, you know? And uh, so I had this like, you know, really good experience with cannabis and this really poor, poor experience with, you know, probably the most commonly prescribed hypnotic, at, at least in Ontario anyway, a lot of people prescribe trazodone as well, which is, which is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty popular. And then I'd say third would be um, Ativan. So a benzodiazepine, which is even more addictive or, you know, uh, more harmful than the other two. So what just between like, was on? what's that? What was it that Tiger Woods was on back in, do you recall? A uh, of, uh, shoot, I don't know. We could probably look it up, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure which one he, he was on. Um, Jordan Peterson was on Benzos uh, that he got addicted to. That was, I think, like 2018 or 2019. Tiger Woods, um, I don't know. I'm not a golfer. I don't really know. He's like the only golfer I could name. Ambient. Ambient. Yeah. So that would be very, very similar to, um, to uh, Zopoclone. Okay. So, so same kind of class of medications. Um, so yeah, I basically, you know, had, you know, a lot of really good experience with cannabis, really, really poor experience, albeit one time with Zopoclone. And, uh, you know, so when other people are coming in and struggling with sleep, like if you kind of know this in your head, you know, it's kind of hard to instruct someone to use something that, you know, is probably more harmful and not as beneficial or effective overall for sleep. So, um, you know, because of that, I wanted to prescribe cannabis. And then, you know, luckily I didn't really have to put up like much of a fight or anything like that. Like I said, like within the first year of, of me or less of me, uh, you know, initiating um, being a, or becoming a family doctor, I was able to prescribe cannabis like fairly freely in a really good medical system in Canada. So, um, you know, I didn't have to kind of like, you know, jump over any hurdles or, you know, knock on any doors or do anything like that with health Canada. It was, uh, it was just kind of freely available for us to prescribe. So it definitely worked out that way with, uh, with, with the timing. So you, you find yourself leveraging this really great new Avenue in Canada and doing it, what, five or six years, and you, I don't know if you get a phone call or somehow you get connected to end up on the largest podcast in the world. And not even just on the podcast, but you get to go on the podcast and have a debate with somebody who has a completely conflicting standpoint. And I, in fairness, I think you and Alex probably were closer aligned on a lot of things than you necessarily weren't. But some of the key points, I think you're pretty far apart on and probably still remain pretty far apart on. But I listened to this again on my travels uh, over Easter because I had listened back when that originally had come out. Okay. What, what is that process? That. Yeah. What is that process like coming off of such a large stage as almost a figurehead of a new wave of medicine, right? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, first of all, like my, um, you know, if you want to call it relationship with Joe kind of started around like 2014 or 2015, I think he started following me on, uh, on Twitter, I think it was more like 2014 and, um, just kind of like yourself, like, I think for the most part, I just have a lot of similar interests as, as, uh, as Joda. So, you know, I'm very much into athletics and a big, 
MMA fans still do a lot of MMA, like spar all the time with, you know, UFC guys, stuff like that. So I, uh, you know, I had that kind of interest in nutrition and lifestyle. And then um, on top of that, obviously, I was very, you know, interested and curious about cannabis. And he, um, you know, saw that. So, um, you know, we kind of, he, he had retweeted me a bunch, you know, back and forth over the years. We had a couple, you know, very small conversations where we DM'd each other about cannabis or, you know, some other uh, topics. And then, uh, yeah, so 2019, Alex Branson wrote this book uh, called uh, Tell Your Children, which was, you know, more or less Reefer Madness 2.0 in, in some ways. And I don't want to like crap on Alex because there's other things that Alex does that, you know, I actually do agree with. And we have, you know, communicated since that time. And we have like an amicable Kavola relationship with, with one another. But, um, you know, to get back to your, to your question, like at that time, you know, I, um, I had even, you know, a smaller following than I have online right now. Uh, I don't think I was, maybe I was verified on one platform. I'm not really sure, but didn't have a podcast, didn't have, you know, too, too much going on other than just, um, being someone who was, you know, known to be knowledgeable in cannabis to a few people like Joe Rogan. So then he just DM'd me on on Twitter. And I just want to say this too, because everyone always asks, like he paid for my flight down there, both my night's hotel. Uh, was really, really nice guy when I met him. He was exactly, you know, how I pictured him to be. So there wasn't that kind of big disappointment when you meet someone that you've, you know, been following or look up to or, you know, see as like a mentor. Um, you know, he was, he was just a really, really great guy. But, um, you know, coming off of, of the podcast, I knew there was going to be, I kind of actually did anticipate a little bit more like backlash, but uh, I think for the most part, just because it was, uh, you know, there were some tense moments in that podcast, but for the most part, it was, uh, you know, and Joe mediated it very well. I didn't feel like there was too much like friction overall. And, and the one that was friction, it was fairly minimal and we kind of gained came to some type of agreement or at least, you know, agree to disagree. Um, but after, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of people that were reaching out to me. Um, you know, I certainly saw an uptick of, you know, my name online and, and, uh, and that kind of thing and Google searches and, um, you know, create it, um, more of an opportunity for me to, you know, connect with people like yourself. I mean, if you're, you know, watch it three hours after or three years after it was, you know, created, um, you know, I imagine that there's other people are too. So it definitely sort of, you know, changed my career and helped me connect with other people. And, you know, I'm so grateful that, that Joe had me on. Yeah. And I've seen recently you've expanded past THC. Am I correct in leveraging ketamine or at least studying? I, I don't know how far into that you've gotten, but I wanted to ask because that, I mean, obviously I'm a fan of Rogan, right? So that's something that he's talked about with a number of people. Um, I'm, you know, pretty clueless other than just the concept of leveraging it for what I would imagine is, um, you know, psycho type of psychoanalysis maybe, or really like guided um, therapy sessions, I guess. Would yeah, be, would well, be the it's, a, it's a really good, good question. And, um, I do prescribe ketamine. I have done it since 2019 and I've actually been published for it two times. So oh, one time I was, uh, published for it using it as a monotherapy, meaning, you know, patients are just taking it at home and I'll go over that and how I do that. And then, uh, the second time was, um, 
just this year, I think, or maybe it was beginning or the end of last year, where I uh, was published with another um, psychotherapist that I um, that I uh, work with, where I prescribe the ketamine and then the patient would go and do psychotherapy with her. So um, you can, it can be effective in both ways. So using it as like a model therapy, like just on its own, I mean, in some ways that's similar to using it as um, an antidepressant and the fact that like, you know, you don't, you know, need someone else there. And the fact that it does seem to exert these very rapid and potent antidepressant effects can be effective for people without um, needing someone uh, there. So, you know, some of my patients will take it, say like once a week, and some of my patients will take it two or three times a week. But the other thing I should mention is that I only, because I'm a family doctor, um, I mean, there may be ways to get around this when, with extra training and stuff, but because I'm a family doctor, I just prescribe capsules. So capsules of ketamine are not very bioavailable. So because of that, you know, people, you know, don't get these um, like big shattering kind of, um, uh, you know, experiences that, you know, can be frightening at times. Uh, people, you know, I just use a lower dose. It's usually start between 50 to 75 milligrams as an oral capsule. And even at that dose, like if you take it with food in your stomach, even if you've eaten, you know, hours ago, like three or four hours ago, maybe even six or seven hours ago, you probably still won't get that much an effect off it just because it's so poorly absorbed. So it does have to be taken on an empty stomach uh, from a capsule if you do want to get a beneficial effect. But the nice thing about it, as opposed to a lot of antidepressants, because like, when you hear about antidepressants, things like SSRI, selective serotonin, you have to take inhibitors, you'll hear people say oh, it takes four to six weeks to kick in and you, know, you have to wait that length or you don't really know if the medication is working. Ketamine's not like that at all. So as soon as you take it, you know, you should notice something in the first hour to 24 hours maximum. So you basically are noticing it like right away. Like, like, like I said, like definitely within, within 24 hours. So that's really excellent because it's, uh, you know, you do have patients sometimes that are, you know, suicidal and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for those patients, they tell me that it just absolutely like breaks them out of suicide like that, like just, you know, gets rid of those, those negative thoughts and they don't have them anymore. And then, the second part with regards to the um, ketamine assisted psychotherapy, um, you know, some people really benefit from having a psychotherapist there, particularly if it's a psychotherapist that they're already uh, used to or they already know their background or their story. And then that way they, they just feel like they can get a deeper, you know, psychotherapy session. Like people kind of call it, you know, psychotherapy on steroids kind of thing. So instead of you know, uh, they, they might compare it as like, you know, when I do my ketamine session with the psychotherapist, it's like we almost did 20 sessions in one just because we got so deep. So um, there's a couple of different ways that, that you can use it. And I'm, I'm a fan of both. What's the mechanism? Is it similar to what's happening when you're doing like an assisted therapy session with MDMA? Or is it a completely different mechanism inside of the brain? Yes, that's another uh, really good question, and it is a completely different mechanism. So, um, a lot of the, uh, the 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 psychedelics they act on what's called the five HD two A receptor, and I feel like that is the uh, the reason why people have these such profound experiences. Whereas when you're looking at ketamine, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist, and so a completely different mechanism of action. 
And like, if that's, you know, those receptors names are going over your head, like, don't worry about it. all you need to know is that they're completely different from one another, which is good too, because, um, you know, if someone is, uh, if they like over abused psychedelics and they're like, okay, well now I have like nothing left to try. It's like, well, no, you don't, you have, you have ketamine left to try because it does have, you know, a very different mechanism of action that can, um, you know, pull you out of, of whatever you're kind of going through and then vice versa as well. Like if you've, you know, use ketamine and, and I should note that, you know, you can build up a, a tolerance to ketamine and, or if you've used ketamine and you, know, you didn't really get the experience that you were looking for, the results that you were looking for, um, you know, you can in fact use, you know, psychedelics and potentially have a completely different and more beneficial experience. So that was a really good question actually for you to ask. And I wish more people um, kind of knew that just because a lot of the times ketamine kind of gets grouped into these other medicines and it's not like unfair um, and it's not you know, like ridiculous that people are doing that by any means, but it technically, you know, it is, it isn't a psychedelic. It's, 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 it's an anesthetic. So it has a completely different mechanism of action than say LSD or MDMA. And I mean, MDMA in some ways, when you want to bring you break it down is actually an amphetamine, but it has, you know, more um, classic um, uh, psychedelic effects to it than ketamine for that's what more, more a lot of people would probably agree with that. I feel like every time I've heard somebody using ketamine in a medical setting like this, it was for depression. And I noticed that you mentioned depression earlier. Is yeah. that tend to be the case and that things like MDMA or even psilocybin tend to be more therapy driven on PTSD or is the application really irrelevant and more to, to tied to things like you had mentioned, like, okay, uh, maybe you've leveraged a lot of psychedelics. And so we're going to, you know, leverage ketamine for this therapy, or is it more tied to what problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, that's a really, really, I, I know I said this three or four times, but that's another really good question. It's something that I'm trying to tease out on my own. And I kind of have some of my own theories to that, that I'll speak of a little bit, but um, there's not so much like concrete evidence on that right now. So I think what you're kind of getting at a little bit is like, you know, would ketamine be better for depression or would psilocybin be better for depression or would, you know, ketamine maybe be better for PTSD over psilocybin or MDMA better? I don't know if we have all of those, you know, questions teased out in the literature overall. Um, but just from, you know, my own experience with patients, um, like it seems like ketamine is really good for um, treatment resistant depression. So when you're just in a state where you like can't feel like any kind of love whatsoever um, and you uh, and you just kind of can't get going and you're very angry and, and kind of like upset and pissed off at the world, it seems like it kind of like negates those effects almost immediately, like within, you know, 24 hours, like I was saying. Um, Whereas like psilocybin, uh, which is magic mushrooms. Um, now there are different magic mushrooms. So you have to be you know careful, but for the most part, it's a little bit more like energizing, you know, especially during the experience of like of like a microdose. So when you take ketamine, um, you know, people if they do have side effects after, like they may tend to feel a little bit tired. Now, now they they may not always feel tired though because 
like I said, if you're depressed and it lifts you out of your depression, that usually kind of gives you a little bit of energy. But for psilocybin, um, you know, people tend to, to kind of, like I've heard a lot of people almost say that it's like an entrepreneurial sort of drug. Like it really kind of lifts you up and pushes you forward and gives you energy. Um, and I've joked around, I know you do MMA. Like I've joked around with friends that like, man, like psilocybin should be on the water list. Like the shit makes you like go when you're, when you're doing training. That, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's stories of guys that will microdose and they say, I mean, it's crazy, but anything's possible any, anymore. Christ. They say like, you can almost see the punch coming where, yeah, I know. Like, like I had, what am I, you know? Like I was, uh, I don't want to like get too specific in their names because people will be able to figure them out. There was one um, guy who fought in the UFC and I was on his, his podcast and he said, uh, he was talking about uh, one of the fighters. And again, I won't mention his name, but this guy got to a point where he fought, I think for the belt or at least the interim belt. Um, and they said he like, the, he thought he was doing something like, three grams of mushrooms like that day of the fight which is like that to me is completely insane but um i mean you know and i wouldn't certainly wouldn't like uh advise that in any way whatsoever but uh in terms of um you know its, it's effect on physical performance i think that's something that does need to be evaluated and i wouldn't be surprised if there was you know, a tremendous positive effect overall, but I would suspect that it wouldn't be for most people, you know, three grams, it might be like 50 to a hundred, like maybe 150 or 200, like maximum if you're a big dude. But I can imagine after that, like, you know, there might be some disruption in like psycho, like motor agitation and, and, that, and that kind of thing, you know, just because you're, you're so heightened up. Uh, but obviously being, being a little bit heightened up definitely, you know, gives you energy so that you can, you know, go do what you want to do. And then I'm um, sure you're familiar with, with Paul Stamets and, you know, it kind of seems like he believes that, um, you know, just like the, with uh, cannabis, how like CBD and THC can, you know, enhance each other's factor or act synergistically or like, you know, CBD can negate some of the side of some of the side effects of THC that potentially like cordyceps, you know, combining that with the psilocybin, maybe combine the lion's mane, then you have like an increase in, you know, physical performance, mental performance, and, uh, and overall, you know, you just kind of perform better. Um, so again, like these are things that we're sort of speculating, but, um, you know, the, 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 the hypothesis kind of like makes sense to a lot of people. And, and I think a lot of people would report that anecdotally. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would imagine we're going to find the answer to these things rather quickly now that research is starting to be a little bit more free. Correct me if I'm wrong, but things were pretty much stagnant and at a standstill for all things, cannabis, psilocybin, really any psychedelics. Yeah. Um, you know, 60s and 70s, there was some good research and then uh, it pretty much all got halted. Uh, you know, I think the 80s, 90s early uh 2000s you know kind of even the early 2010s had you know limited research um you know they were doing limited research on on psychedelics and cannabis but uh you know since you know the start of 2010s especially the mid 2010s it's just been you know uh it's 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 been hot again where you know a lot of people are really really interested in this topic and uh yeah i mean i think you're right i think we're gonna 
have a lot of the answers, you know, very, very soon. Um, and I think that, you know, it'll, it'll point that it, it'll be very, very positive overall. And we do need these answers because, you know, I mentioned SSRIs earlier on the show, like those came out. I think the first one was in, uh, was, it was in the early eighties anyway. Uh, Prozac was, was the first one. And, uh, you know, we need something new now, you know, because uh, we've been using, you know, the same class of medication. You know, we do use SNRIs, which are a different class and NDRIs, but very, you know, similar-ish mechanisms of action for all these, all these drugs. So it's, uh, it'll be good to have, you know, psychedelics is another uh, route that we can use, you know, just like cannabis is another, you know, tool that we have in our toolbox for people who uh, struggle with sleep. Obviously, it's used for more than sleep, but we want to have another tool in our toolbox for people who struggle with mental health disorders. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you bring up mental health. Yeah, I've been following you from afar, probably off and on more dependent upon what you kind of bubble up to the top. Um, but my yeah. brother <clears throat> sent me a, he sent me a post that you put out about, um, it was like, you can't be, um, you can't be for mask mandates as well as something. I'd have to go back and look, I reshared it on my, on my posts, um, because it was just really telling and the mental health aspect of what we've just gone through with this pandemic and, um, you know, just the world and, and where we're at. And you, you know, you talk about the, the impacts of SSRIs and I had an interesting story and I've talked about it a couple of times on the last two episodes. I actually titled one of the last episodes, can cannabis make you crazy? And it's interesting because I'm a huge advocate of cannabis. Um, mm-hmm. and I would have been one of the first people to like give someone some serious shit if they would have been like, Oh, I was so paranoid or, I, you know, I, I've been like, come on, just deal with it. It's not that bad. Um, but I was at a bachelor party in Florida a few weeks ago, and I have a friend. He's actually in the medical field. Um, very, I respect him a lot. Um, fairly large guy, you know, athletic. And he got. Large. To, what does large mean? Is that uh, like? He, are you being he, nice or are you being? Oh no, yeah, he's I, just trying to paint this picture. He's like a, you know, he's two hundred pounds. He's like a big guy, okay. uh, and he doesn't use cannabis often. He's only ever used it a couple of times. And a friend had some edibles that they had brought from a medical facility, and it was a sativa. It was like called a, I think it was called a wake. It was ten milligrams, and he tried it. And my whole perspective perception of cannabis and like people having a breakdown changed and it, like it, it freaked me out. And I, I want to preface this. Okay. My, my stance on cannabis has not changed. I'm somebody who believes in freedom first and foremost. I believe that there is medical benefit and I believe this is an, uh, an exception and not the rule, but I also believe in being honest. And I know that I would have like pushed back and come up with every reason and excuse that this isn't real. And like, I'm seeing the news now we're about ready to like have recreational cannabis all over the place. And I think about my friend. So he took 10 milligrams uh, and was about, he was going to jump off a balcony, like totally going to jump off a balcony. We had to stop him from jumping off a balcony. Um, he was going to get into it. We we're going to send him back to our place of residence in an Uber. And he was like, please don't send me by myself. I'm going to jump out. of Like he was going to jump out of the car at that point in time. Um, yeah. Got really strange. I, I'll, you know, if people want to 
get into the details, go listen to the last two episodes. I kind of break it down and I laugh a tremendous amount because it, it was kind of hysterical until I realized that it was serious. And the next day we talked with him and he was like, I kept telling myself the only way to get myself back into a normal sense of reality was to jump off the balcony or to jump out of a moving vehicle and that it would like solve the problem. And he's like, and I hear myself saying that right now. And I'm like, like, what? That is the stupidest thing ever. But he's like, I just think, man, I can't handle this stuff. And I don't know what it is about me, but you do, you take, you know, edibles, you smoke weed every day and you don't have any problems with this. Like, he's like, I I don't know what it is. And I've joked about it. And, you know, I've also kind of brought it to light, but knowing your background and I just dumped a whole ton on you. And I know you're very limited information that I just shared, but like, is it just as simple as just some people's bodies don't respond well, or is this more of a scenario where maybe just some companies don't dose things properly or. Yeah. So it's a couple, couple different things. No, it's a great story to bring up. And I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, you know, uh, the negative aspects of, of cannabis because there are some and, you know, some of the cannabis enthusiasts don't like to chat about it, but they do exist. Um, so, you know, first of all, he may have had some genetic predisposition to this. So either personal or familial. So, you know, I don't know if he, you know, is a guy who, uh, you know, has a history of, you know, mental illness, but, you know, that may um, certainly play uh, a role. And then, you know, familiar history. I mean, if you have a family history of schizophrenia, you know, you shouldn't smoke cannabis, you know, um, you can try CBD and see how you do with that. I mean, if you do really well with CBD, you know, you can introduce a tiny bit of, of THC in like, you know, four to one to five to one ratio and go low and slow. But, you know, for the most part, like if you have, um, you know, a family history of schizophrenia, like you really should, you know, stay away from, uh, from, from, from cannabis, uh, completely again, unless it's, you know, the CBD variety. And, and when I say cannabis, there's a lot of more, you know, uh, cannabinoids coming out now, the CBN, the CBG, there's a, there's a bunch of them. So, uh, I mean, stay away from, 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 from THC cannabis. So, you know, that's kind of number one and, you know, kind of putting number one and number two in there, because if he does have, you know, an underlying, you know, mental health condition, um, you know, you have to be careful with people who, who use that you know, because uh, they may in fact have, unfortunately, like a really, really poor experience with, with something like this. Um, coming back again to the dose and to, uh, and, and to the product itself, I mean, more or less like sativa and indica, I think, you know, for the most part, it is like bullshit just because like they're kind of just putting a name on something, but it's like, okay, what makes this one an indica and what makes this one a sativa? And like a lot of people like can't even tell you why, you know, like maybe if you have like, you know, high THC and there's a ton of mercine on, you know, the package indicates like this is the main, you know, terpene in here, which is mercine, which, you know, is known to be very, very sedating and like, fine, you can call that, you know, an indica kind of thing. But for the most part, those terms are, you know, not really very accurate or scientific per se. It's not to interrupt you, but is it maybe because of, how many different strains have been crossbred and that indica and sativa were really easy to identify to your point because of the, um, you know, the different terpenes that were inside that would lead you to one or the other. So it's like, okay, 
you know, a granddaddy perp, it's an indica, but now it's like you get X crossed with this, this, and that. And so it's like, they're just saying, Oh, an OG is always an indica. So that's what this is going to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that at some point they probably did need to make it a little bit more simplistic because there's like, you know, a million different strains and just with anything at the end of the day, they probably be like, okay, listen, what, what, what can I, you know, smoke before I want to go out with my buddies and what can I smoke when I want to just like chill on the couch and, you know, go to, go to bed kind of thing, you know? And when you, you know, make it as easy as that, um, you know, it may catch on, you know, and uh, in terms of like the cannabis world, those things really, really did catch on, but, you know, I would, you know, try to, if you want to use those terms, it's fine. Like, I don't, I'm, it's not a big deal. Just that like, for me, like, there's not much science behind it and it's like it doesn't really indicate or give me that much uh confidence that knowing that okay just because this is indigo this is going to make me sleeping just because this is sativa this is going to make me awake like i just like you know i need more information than that um, some pretty disappointed people who've read those labels for those indications yeah i would i would i mean yeah it's 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 too bad those terms are still used but um you know i guess they serve the purpose for for a short period of time, but I think we can do better now. But coming back to your to your friend, I mean, yeah, I mean, ten milligrams is, um, I mean, that's a decent, you know, starting dose for someone who's like pretty naive. Like I think you know, two and a half or five milligrams would probably be a better starting dose, and uh, using it in conjunction with CBD would be you know very very effective uh, in kind of in negating a lot of the negative effects from um, the THC. Um, and then, uh, in terms of, you know, what happened this, this, this particular guy and why he thought these things, I mean, THC is known to, you know, induce paranoia and people who are susceptible to it. And it sounds like, you know, this guy was very um, susceptible. And I think there's, you know, why would he, you know, want to jump off a building or jump off or jump out of a car <laughs> because he obviously didn't like the way that he was feeling. Mm-hmm. And he knew that, you know, by doing one of those two things, how he felt was going to change. And I mean, depending on how high the balcony was going to be or how high, how far the car was or how fast the car was going, he might have, you know, not felt anything at all if he died. So I think that his brain was just like, I don't want to feel like this right now. What can I possibly do to make this feeling go away? And those are the options that kind of came literally are telling me exactly what he said the next morning like ex- yeah. almost verbatim which i mean and, yeah, it's crazy. and it can you know decrease blood flow to your brain which you know makes you make impulsive decisions and it sounds like this guy was in a really impulsive state and all he wanted to do was just not feel the way that he was feeling at that point so he had you know his logical brain was not thinking i guarantee you this guy's you know, prefrontal cortex, which is like your, your smart brain was just not functioning, was not thinking, had no logic in him whatsoever. And it was just like, I feel bad. I don't want to feel bad anymore. What can I possibly do to make me not feel bad? And the options that came into his brain were jump off a balcony or jump in front of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately that your buddy had that experience at a, at a bachelor party. And that's tough to deal with too, because like, at a bachelor party, like I, I want to have fun and like, I don't want to, 
like deal with that stuff and you've got you know five or six other guys that have all done the same thing and they're not having a bad situation so they think it's funny they're like oh come on man we're all okay you know and then yeah i mean i yeah i mean i would you know like like yourself i probably would have acted the the same way like i i probably been like oh come on man like it's only 10 milligrams like at first you know but then once you see someone is uh you know is really really struggling then you know you're you kind of become scared yourself you know because uh you're like man i don't want this person to actually get sick or actually do something that's gonna like harm themselves and then you do become scared too right so it's uh i mean i guess one of the things uh, one of the moral stories without us we're at a bachelor party or somewhere where like you know the people around you clearly just want to have a good time and don't want to be you know robbed into this like terrible energy like don't try like new drugs like just don't do it it's just not the place to do it and uh anyways i hope your friend is is okay and he recover well he's good he's got a good sense of humor he we've got a, a closed group chat we promised that aside from me sharing it without his name on the podcast that we wouldn't uh, out him to everybody else so it's uh he's doing all right but i don't think he'll be experimenting with cannabis anytime soon so <laughs> yeah it doesn't doesn't sound like it it doesn't sound like, but you know, if there's one silver lining of that, you know, um, and again, maybe this guy just had, you know, a bad experience and that was it, but it kind of gives you some information in some way. So it's like, Hey, all my friends had this and they were fine. And I had this and I, and I wasn't fine. So, you know, maybe there's something else I can do or something that I'm doing wrong that these guys aren't doing that would, you know, help me out. Uh, in some way that would help my mental health or physical health overall, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point. Um, before we jump, I did want to ask you because the mental health thing really is what jumped out to me recently. So, you know, it's interesting because I, the people who used to be progressive, right? It's like, you're, you're somebody who was on the forefront of pushing cannabis from a medical standpoint, as we talked about earlier, you're on a podcast debating somebody about this and yet you're the conservative voice when it comes to mental health and the impact of the pandemic and like i guess where do you where is this gone in that that direction where the former progressive minds in this world are now on the outside and how do we get ourselves back? And what do you think the impact of this at the end of the day, when we study, you know, people and the impacts of the last two years from a sociological and mental health standpoint, are we going to be just shook to the core as to how this is impacting? And I, I mean, I think about this personally because I have two young children. Um, that are, I have a two and a half year old, all he has known, he was born September before the pandemic started. I mean, daycare, mask, you know, very limited initial contact with people until my wife and I kind of got sick of the crap. But I see a lot of the things that you're sharing and, you know, you put something very poignant. There's like 77% of people are obese, you know, 43% are severely obese. And we don't talk about that. You know, this has been a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated, not of the unhealthy. And mm-hmm. we missed this huge opportunity. I'm sure you talk about it with all of your patients, but how many people are, you know, two years? I mean, you can, 
lose and gain a hundred pounds back and forth three or four times in that amount of time. And yet people would rather sit around and argue than take action. And so I wanted to close this with this because I think it's really, really important. And, you know, you seem to have a, a strong interest in, in illuminating what is otherwise just not being talked about. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it is interesting because, um, I've always, you know, I've never really categorized myself like, uh, politically like whatsoever, but I, I thought I was sort of like more, I guess, to the left in, in some ways, just because like, I'm so like pro, uh, pro, pro drugs. And I do think that, you know, all drugs should be, should be legal kind of thing. And, um, you know, now like every day on Twitter or Instagram, I get called like alt-right or something like that because of my, because of my views on, on COVID. Um, but yeah, to your, to your point, um, it was 70, yeah, 70, and this is CDC data, uh, about the U S but the United States. So, uh, 77% of people were considered to be overweight. So that's using, uh, the uh, body mass index. So it would be between 25 to 30. And then once you're above 30, you're considered to be obese and 43% of people actually fall into that category. So, I mean, that's almost one out of like, you're talking over three out of four people are overweight and almost one and two are obese. And you can say, okay, but what about the guy who, you know, works out at the gym and is, you know, absolutely jacked and, you know, he's, he's ripped, like he might be considered to be, you know, overweight. There might be a small, small number of people who fall into that category of being overweight um, to be like obese and to be like ripped is almost like impossible. Like you have to be like an Olympic bodybuilder, like dudes that just go to the gym, you know, that are all natural, like they're not going to stack as much muscle to like get into like that obese category, but there might be enough of them to skew the numbers though. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If there might be a few in the, uh, overweight category, but again, it's still, it's still very few. Like most people who meet the 25 and above BMI category are there because they have poor body composition, not because they're, you know, super, super muscular kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that it's something that's been completely lost in the narrative, just like how, you know, cannabis wasn't and psychedelics weren't part of the conversation, you know, years ago. Uh, for whatever reason in COVID, um, like it's certainly been talked about a lot of like, you know, podcasts and that kind of thing. But if you look at mainstream media, uh, I mean, they really haven't discussed uh, obesity being a risk factor for for COVID at all. And it's it's unfortunate. And, you know, we're, we live in this like nerf sort of world where, you know, we have to be very, very careful of not offending other people. And in reality, what happens is that when we try not to offend other people, we actually put them in a worse situation overall. It's like someone, you know, might say to me, like, oh, you're not caring and like empathetic because you know, you're talking about obesity. Uh, but it's like, okay, well, you can say that you can have your opinion, but like you're telling somebody and other people that it's okay to live this very unhealthy lifestyle, which is, you know, can lead to depression and it can also lead to, you know, your, your life ending early. Uh, it can also lead to you having you know, a worse time with COVID. So, you know, I think that it's actually, you know, not empathetic to do that. And I think you're kind of, you know, virtue signaling in a lot of ways. And, you know, I understand that, 
know, tough love isn't always the answer, but it definitely is, you know, sometimes the answer. And I think that we have to, you know, not be afraid of, of using a little bit of tough love sometimes, you know, on our, on our friends and just on society in general. And, um, and I think that if we had done that at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, just like you said, you know, we, we'd be in a completely different situation because, you know, I had a, a guy, uh, Tommy Cottle is a local friend here. Uh, and I was, and he was on my podcast recently, he owns a gym and, you know, he, he was, you know, we, we said the same thing, like, yeah, you can't lose weight overnight, you know, and reduce your risk, but you know, we're not talking about overnight. The pandemic's been going on for over two years now. It's been like 25 plus months. And, uh, you know, we know that, you know, to your point, you can lose a hundred pounds and gain it back and lose another hundred pounds within that time, you know? So, um, it is, uh, it is something that's, you know, really been missed in, in the conversation and, uh, you know, public health messaging has just failed completely on that. And, uh, I wish it was, you know, discussed a little bit more. And unfortunately, like I said, the reason why I think it's not discussed is because people are just, you know, afraid of, you know, hurting someone else's feelings, but, you know, you should be more afraid of, you know, that person, you know, gaining more weight and becoming more unhealthy and potentially dying because of the advice you're giving, as opposed to, you know, just giving them a little bit of tough love and indicating that and, and some encouragement, like, you know, you can lose weight. People do do it all the time. You know, look at David Goggins, Google him, see what, you know, how much weight that guy lost. Um, you know, we all have a friend or two who, you know, were 50 or hundred pounds overweight. And at one point, you know, got rid of their weight. Like, it's possible. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's completely possible. I had and, uh, not, not to interrupt you, but there's a podcast that I had, Justin Willoughby. I, you'd have to go back and look, but Justin and I went to school together <clears throat> and we were in homeroom up until seventh grade, maybe when he dropped out. Uh, he got to be 799 pounds. Holy shit. Um, he was humongous and he was always big, but he blew up in, in his later teen years. And he had a doctor tell him, you're going to die. Like you, it's just a matter of when, unless you really change. And even then it's going to be like a hard road for you. And, uh, he's, the story's awesome. I mean, he walked through a lot of it here and he's, he's written a book and he helps a lot of other people with their weight loss journeys, but he's down under, I think he got under 200 pounds. And then he oh, got wow. up a little bit like 212, 215 um, when I was talking with him, but he had skin, uh, he had a surgery recently to remove a ton of excess skin. And I know I haven't checked with him recently, but he was expecting that to take like 20 or 25 pounds off to get him back underneath 200. But I mean, I just say that because if you listen, I don't want to spoil the whole thing, but he talks about he was struggling daily to just his workout for the first week when he went to that doctor and the doctor's like, you're 799 pounds. You're going to die. 799, 799. That's crazy. I remember, um, big pun was, was 796. Apparently right. I don't know if you remember him yet. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Wow. I yeah. didn't realize he was that big. Yeah. At the end of his career. I mean, he, he died obviously, you know, uh, because of it, but, um, yeah, he uh, he was he was seven hundred and ninety six pounds. But and there's other examples like celebrities, like um, I mean his friend uh, Fat Joe. I mean he lost a bunch a bunch of weight too. 
um you know there's been a lot of people about it like there's so many examples of people out there that you can just find them on instagram and like your buddy but your buddy though that's insane because that's like like 600 pounds yeah yeah i mean he was talking about how his workout was stand up and sit down and that was it for the day he's like i wasn't doing that for years he would just have people bring him food and he would hide it and i mean it's unbelievable you know and to get inside the yeah. mindset of somebody like that it's and again, like, you know, I, I don't mean to harp on this, but like the people, uh, and just so you know, I'm not really like time constrained or anything. So if you go yeah, over yeah. there, but, um, you know, the people bringing him food, like they probably thought that they were doing him like a good thing. Like, oh, my friend's in bed. He doesn't, he's, you know, he, he, he wants to eat. I'm going to bring him some food, but it's like, you're doing a lot more than bringing like food to him. Like you're encouraging like a bad habit and you're enabling someone and you're contributing to someone's obesity and you're making that person's life worse. Mm -hmm. Like you should really, you know, uh, you know, look at the big picture here because, you know, sure. You know, you, you just look at the fact that like, Oh, someone's in bed, they can't access food. They can't get up to get the food. I'm going to go bring them food. It's like, yeah, like I can see how you might think that's like helpful, but if you really look at the whole person's life, like, it's really not that helpful for them at all. And you're really just contributing to them gaining weight. So, you know, uh, we really need to like rethink about like what actual help is. And like I said, like it's not tough. Love doesn't always work and there's a time and place for it, but like never using any tough love, I think has more detrimental consequences than maybe using it more than it should be but ideally what you want to do is you'll know, find that strike that balance and and find the right times and moments to use um, the tough love and you know and when are those times like when the person's having you know a good day and when you can you know tell them something and you just kind of get the sense that you know this person's in a pretty good mood today i think it's a good opportunity for me to like bring up something difficult um, if the person's, you know, in a bunch of, you know, emotional distress and, you know, they're, they're just really upset about something, you don't want to add more stress on top of that with tough love. Like that's not the time to do it. But, um, you know, we definitely need to, I think, be more open to using tough love. We need to look at the fact that like when you use tough love, you're looking at the big picture overall, you know, the big picture overall. Whereas, you know, when you're just focusing on, you know, getting the person that food that one day, you're not looking at the big, at, at the big picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think people want it to be easy. They want to be able to help somebody easy. Right. And to your mm -hmm. point, it takes effort. It takes understanding where that person is that day. But yeah. I, I think your, your encouragement carries more weight when you also give criticism. You know, I, some, some of the best encouragement that I've ever gotten have come from people who have really given me a hard time when I've failed or fallen short of their expectations of me. And then, you know, when they encourage you though, it, it carries a, it carries a heavier weight. At least for me, it does. When, when I know that, you know, it's not just somebody that's here to, you know, give me a pat on the back and tell me what I want to hear, but they, yeah. they care about my success and they're willing to call me out on, you know, my shortcomings when, you know, I'm not living up to that expectation. Yeah. I think actually a really good example of that was, um, uh, I'm sure you're familiar when Rogan kind of grilled uh, Schwab and about his, uh, MMA on there. And he, about basically he, he quit after that because he said like, you know, 
uh, I think he said, like, you know, what do you think would happen if you got into like a wrestling match with Kane Kane Velasquez? And he was like, he'd probably fuck you up. And I mean, you know, he he may or may, may not have saved you know his career to a certain extent you know because uh brennan schwab and for people listening just google him like he's extremely successful guy he's uh got two or three podcasts on the go he's always at like the main events for fights um seems to be like a go-to guy just in that overall sphere you know in, in the combat sports world and um excellent stand-up comedian i'm not sure if i said that but you know just doing really well overall in life and again like at one point he was um in the ufc had a couple big wins i know he beat um uh i know he beat crow crop yeah and um i think he lost to uh what's rousey's boyfriend's name again uh, um Brown, Matt, yeah, I think I think I think he lost to him, but he was doing. Travis he had a he had a few a few good good wins though, you know, and uh, but you know, still Joe kind of said to him like, listen, like, you know, you you, you probably shouldn't you know f- fight anyone more or less in the top five. You probably get fucked up, and like, you know, maybe like Brandon would have proved everyone wrong, but like that's just a good example of like, you know, he's he laid it into him on on air. And, you know, it was super difficult for, you know, Brandon to take in, I'm pretty sure. It's probably difficult for people to watch at that time just because, you know, it was a little bit awkward. But, I mean, in the end, it seems like, you know, Joe Joe, Joe gave him the right advice. Uh, he listened, you know, he quit. He uh, now, again, has like a bunch of successful uh, businesses that he does. And uh, so, you know, you have to be able to, you know, tell people sometimes and like just because you're giving someone you know advice or even telling them to like you know quit their job or whatever it is it's not you're not telling them to like quit at life you're just saying like you know maybe you should try you know something different because if you keep going the way that you're going things are not going to go well for you and you know this guy was just kept getting food brought to him every single day things were not going to go well for that guy like you said like his doctor told him it's not like you know, if you're going to die, it's, it's when, you know? And, um, so, you know, I'm happy that, you know, he was given some advice and, and, you know, given a little bit of tough love and, and in his situation and in Schwab's situation, Brendan Schwab seems like, you know, that tough love is what, you know, made them make a very difficult decision that proved to be, um, you know, uh, very helpful for them in the long term. Yeah. And I don't know where we, where we got to the place where you can't give criticism or tough love. I mean, I think the people who are never going to accept the tough love, they're not looking to get the improvement that the person giving the tough love is trying to apply. So you're, it's like, you're, you're expecting a response from somebody that you, you're never going to get. You're, you're, you're searching in the wrong places for it. You know? And I think, that's the problem. You know, we, we expect that we're going to change these people's mind. It's like anybody who argued that giving out participation awards was a bad idea. I think they all still agree with that. I bet you they all look and say, Hey, see, look what we told you. Everything that we said that was going to happen 10 years ago when we were all, that was like the thing. I like, I lived through it. Like I remember being like having tryouts where they posted your name on the door and the like, in the hallway of the middle school yeah, I remember and there were that. kids that were crying. And then within a couple of years, it was, 
everybody makes the team. And then it was like, Oh, you know, if the girl wants to be on the team, she can be on the team too. Cause we don't want to hurt her feelings. And now we're not going to do all stars because that's going to, and I was saying it along with a lot of other people and all of us would sit there and say, yes, look at, look at the world right now. It is a, this is the exact result of that. But the people that argued it 20 years ago would still argue it today, even with all of the evidence right there in front of you. And it's funny, man, talk about coming full circle. I posted in my story earlier today, um, Eben, we talked about Eben Britton. Um, yeah. I know you've been on Eben Flow, uh, I think a couple of times. Eben's been on this podcast twice. He's coming on again in the next week or two. Um, we need to reconnect. But I shared something that I saw from him and it was talking about like, you could gift wrap the answer to the world's problems and give it to some people. And it doesn't matter. Like they have to come to the realization themselves. And I don't know how we get to that point because I think things couldn't be any more clear than they, than they ever have. Like I look around right now, there is no confusion to me and I'm a lot like you. I was really confused where I stood. I didn't really know like, well, who's my tribe. I kind of fit in with these people. I believe a lot of what these people believe in. I kind of just got along by getting along. And now I'm like, there's some things that are so black and white and very obvious. If you're looking at it from the perspective of like sustaining civilization, you know, like there's some things that on the surface I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to have happen, but it's like, it doesn't matter if the world's going to like end up in nuclear war. We should probably focus on these things before we worry about, you know, a, a guy being able to swim against girls in the NCAAs and think that that's okay. And even have the conversation like, what? I don't know, like there's fucking shit happening everywhere where this is silly to even be talking about. Yeah. Like, I don't know why, like, I'm never going to get into an argument with someone over like pronouns in like the bio, just because it's like, it's more or less like it's inconsequential. Like we don't like, there's things that are much more important in the world, mm -hmm. you know, like again, and like, I'm not trying to, you know, virtue sing or anything of like that, but like, there's, there's people like, you know, who don't have, you know, food to eat in Africa. And then people are like trying to put pronouns in their bio and then not sending those people, you know, that need uh, money or food, you know, they'll, they'll do nothing to help them, but they'll think that, they'll, that they're a good person because they have he, him in their fucking bio, yeah. right? Like it's, it's fucked up. Like it's, 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 it's totally fucked up. Like, you know, like people are really just concentrated on virtue signaling. And what happens is a lot of people see when you're completely useless in the world, you can always still virtue signal. And I think there's a lot of people who feel, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, sound harsh or anything, but you know, who kind of feel powerless or feel useless, who feel insignificant, who feel like they have no purpose. And because of that, you know, what can you do? Oh, well, I can make everyone in the world think that I'm this way. I'm a huge loser because I devote all my effort to helping other people. So I'm going to signal that to everybody. And that's what we have. We have a lot of people who really have nothing to contribute like whatsoever. And because they have nothing to, to, to contribute, they decide that I'm going to virtue signal to other people so that other people think that I'm important. And then also they think that because they're, they're doing this, 
this is the reason why that they're not successful. It's like, oh, I could be just as successful as you if I was as mean or horrible as a person as you. It's like, actually, that person that you're talking to or, or you're talking about saying that they're, you know, successful because of these reasons, you don't know why they're why they are successful. And more importantly, a lot of these really successful people actually give away their money and do things for other people. And if you decided to become successful yourself and you know, you did become successful financially, then you could help more people with your financial success. Like, how do you know that the person who, you know, next to you, who wants to be, who's really ambitious and wants to be successful financially, how do you know that they, you know, don't want to, you know, donate a lot of their money to people in Africa or donate to, you know, some, you some good cause in the local area, you know, like you have no idea about that. So, you know, I think that that um, messaging doesn't get discussed enough. And I think that we need to, you know, just say, like say things the way they are as opposed to tiptoe as opposed to tiptoeing around you know we need to like call people out and let them know that like no like you're wrong what you're saying is complete bullshit and you're just saying it to satisfy yourself to make yourself look like and feel like a good person but in reality you need to come to the grips that like you're not doing well in life and you need to change things completely and you need to do that logically and it's going to take a lot of effort but a lot of people you know, just don't like to do that because it's so much easier to judge and criticize people as opposed to build yourself up. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, I hope that that will change in the future. But unfortunately, right now, you know, we're just things just seem to be, you know, getting worse overall. Well, uh, and how much of it is driven because of social media? I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times all of these types of conversations circle back to social media. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of it. I leverage it every day. You and I are connected because of it. But I have to wonder if being able to virtue signal, it's only, you're only able to do it if you're living in a digital world. I couldn't virtue signal in the reality world before because it was like put up or shut up. Like you, you're right there. You're you, you can't pretend to be something that you really aren't, but that's exactly what the internet is. It's a bunch of people pretending to be things. And if that's where the majority of everyone's time is spent and the, where the majority of value is created, unless there's like a bullshit meter that you can identify. Cause like if you and I are so like, I, I we all know people that are like that. You hear somebody talking and you're just like, Oh, this guy's a, he's a blowhard. He's full of shit. He's just a pompous ass. That's trying to tell everybody here what he wants, but I can clearly see that he's not who he says he is and his actions don't align with what he's, what he's saying, but you can create an online persona. And to your point, you can be this miserable loser. Who's not done anything with your life, living in your mom and dad's basement, eating ramen noodles every day. And you can present yourself as something completely different with a set of values that make you above and beyond everybody else. And I don't know how that's, how do you combat that? And if you can't combat that, is the, is the social media world and the digital world that we're kind of transitioning into, I mean, it's already fixed. It's, it's rigged. It's not real to me. It's, it's instantly irrelevant. If we acknowledge that people like that play a significant role in the motion of everything. Yeah, I think what what happens too is that, you know, before social media, 
people compare themselves to other people. And, you know, we all say that, you know, you shouldn't compare yourselves to other people, but it's fucking impossible not to. Like, it's just, it's really, really difficult. I'm not saying like it can't be done. Um, you know, I'm just saying like it is, it is difficult not to. And, you know, comparing yourself to others does sometimes create competition. You know, you see someone else doing, doing better than you, you know, whether it's in MMA or you're doing a run or lifting weights or whatever, you see someone else doing better than you. I mean, you know, sometimes it does like propel you to be like, fuck, I need to up my game a little bit. I need to do like a, l- a little bit more. So it's not always, always bad. Um, Cause it's definitely happened to, to me before, you know, where I've, you know, maybe compared myself to someone else and I'm like, fuck, like that guy's doing it. Like I can do it too, you know? Um, but at the same time, social media, like, you know, that, that may happen in certain instances, like a couple times a week kind of thing. You might see that this particular person or whatever it is at, at a sport, but like with social media, like I, I saw something the other day, it says that we check our phones every four minutes. So like, you know, that's just constantly in your head all day, all day, like comparing yourself to other people. And then at the end of the day, if you've only compared yourself to someone who's doing, you know, much, much better than you, um, then you obviously are going to feel worse at, at the end of the day. So like the way I sort of like approach that is like, you know, if someone, you know, makes you feel sort of like lesser or you feel like, you know, insecure around a certain person, like good, like accept it, like good. Like this is the way you feel. You just got some really valuable information. You know, you didn't know that you were insecure towards this person before, but now you, you know that like, and accept it. And it's like, okay, well think like, why, why am I like, what is like, what are they doing that? Like I'm, I'm not doing or that I could do better. And then when you, and then, you know, from there you can formulate a plan as to how you can get better. And then when you do get better, you feel so much better about it. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, social media, unfortunately though, doesn't do that just because it's so quick, you know, it's every four minutes. So you just never get into this point where you can just stop and think logically you're just sort of like every four minutes like you know you you get to this point where you compare yourself where you compare yourself whereas like say if you just happened once a week at the gym or whatever you you compare yourself there at that time and then you go home you don't see them for another week you have all this time where you can you know formulate plans to get better and better and uh and to make yourself improve whereas like if you're just in this like four minute loop never actually get to the improving part you're just constantly comparing you know wrap up your day you've got 20 things you're self-conscious about and don't know which direction to go in yeah yeah exactly i know i said i had uh extra time but i probably have a couple more minutes but i'd be happy to come back on anytime so for sure man hopefully you know i mentioned evan's been on a few times there's been a handful of people that i have on often because i enjoy the dialogue genuinely and certainly this is one of those times um I think we have a lot in common, obviously, and uh, would certainly appreciate having future dialogue in the in uh, yeah future conversations. Yeah, man. Well, anytime you combine, I think you know psychedelics and, and MMA and nutrition and fitness, I'm the, I'm, I'm going to be there. All oh, right, on. Now, thank you so much. And where can people find you on? So if they're on here and they're listening and watch uh, things online, I know you have your website and you have you're on Instagram and Twitter. You do a lot on Twitter, right? 
Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. It's all Dr. Mike Hart. So it's D-R-M-I-K-E-H-A-R-T. And you can find me there online. And if you Google me, you'll probably you know, find me pretty quick. And I have my own podcast called Heart to Heart as well. So That's right. lots of uh, lots of places you, you can find me. Well, excellent, dude. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, I'll be in touch in the future for sure. Um, I forgot to ask you, are you a coffee drinker? I saw you drinking something. Yeah, I am a coffee drinker. I was, I was drinking tea uh, just then, but yeah, I do, I do drink coffee. I usually have about two and a half cups a day. I'll get your information. Uh, partner in a company that sponsors the podcast, but um, like natural supplements, turmeric, CBD, things like that, but um, originated as a coffee brand that we okay. all batch roast down in Austin. We source from Guatemala. So good stuff. If you're a coffee drinker, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'll send you a nice little batch to get Love you today. Love it. Be, be, be happy to, uh, to uh, try it. Awesome. Thanks you again, Mike. Appreciate it. I'll be in touch. Okay. Sounds good, brother. Thanks.